Good morning. Um, I'm Robert Ersprung, as Shane had mentioned. I'm one of the deacons here at HopeWorks. And when he asked me to do a, a message sometime this year uh, in the spring, I you know, thought about it, prayed about it, I was a little intimidated about it. This is not what I do. Um, I'm comfortable in front of groups. I speak a lot for my job, but speaking in front of church was a little bit of a stretch for me. And so, you know, I've really prayed about what God had put on my heart, and I have a message that I hope is, is sort of a blessing to you. Um, and if you're a first-time visitor, I really would implore you to come back and hear Shane preach God's word some Sunday. Um, it's not that he's a great communicator. Um, he is. It's not that he's a very nice person. Um, likewise, he is. It, it's that he's genuine, and there's an authenticity to the faith in him sharing God's word. It's not that it's slick or put together in a certain way. It's that God's truth is all that it needs to stand on, and he rests on that. And I think the culture of this church is built on that. I love this church. I look around the room. I see diversity in color. I see diversity in background. I see diversity in economic circumstances. Um, and that's been a real blessing for me to remember that um, it's not about what I look like. It's not about my pedigree. It's about today did I make a choice um, to surrender to God's will for me. And uh, that's a little bit of the theme of what we're, we're going to be talking about. What is your focus on in life? Um, and where is your security? So I have a little video clip that's going to start us up. Reggie, if you could uh, play that for us. That video really makes me sad in many ways. I know that's not what every Christian reflects, um, but that's what the world sees, and to many, perception is reality. Um, and as I reflect on that in my life, what am I reflecting? I went back to Scripture. I said, well, what did, what did Christ reflect in his life? Um, where was he firm? Where did he have compassion? And it's quite different than what I think many people see in us today. When I see who did Jesus have compassion for, is for Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And if you know much of history at that time, tax collectors were essentially traitors to the Jewish people. Um, they were hated. They were corrupt. They were just everything negative in the, into the Jewish heart at that time. But Jesus had compassion for Zacchaeus. He had compassion for people that had flaws but an open heart. He had compassion for the Samaritan woman at the well. Likewise, Samaritans were detestable people to the Jews for a variety of reasons, for history that went back almost 600 years before Jesus' time. But he had huge compassion for her and loved on her, and she saw that love. She didn't feel his wrath and judgment. He had compassion for the adulterous woman when the Pharisees paraded her out and caught her in the act of adultery and trying not only stone her, but trap Jesus in a, in a trap to, to get him in trouble, he comes back with love and grace for this woman and no judgment, no stoning, and let the Pharisees, the religious elite, see the hypocrisy in their order of rule following. Did Jesus get angry? Occasionally, but sure was the exception. It tended to be successful, well-educated, hypocritical people with hearts of stone. When they put the rules and order above where their heart was, that was very frustrating to God. You saw that when he went to the temple in Matthew and he overturned the tables of the money changers who turned the temple, which was supposed to be God's house, into sort of a, an aggressive profit-making sector. Nothing wrong with the business, but this was beyond business. This was just aggressive thievery. You saw it when he'd criticize the Pharisees in their um, hierarchical rule-following um, structure. So. It, Clearly, God put a sense on me that God's not concerned with my successes. He's not even concerned with my failures. He doesn't need 
my ability or my skill set, that's the height of hubris to think that I need to be able to do X, Y, and Z for God. Um, but he is concerned with where my heart is. When I have a surrendered heart, great things can happen for God when I choose to get out of, out of the way. So if you turn to Matthew 15, it's the first book of the New Testament, so maybe two-thirds of the way through your Bible. This chapter really spells out nicely to me that it's not knowing about God that he desires, but it's knowing God intimately that is desired. It's where your heart is, not the rules and the appearance. And if you'll drop down in chapter 15 of Matthew to verses 8 and 9, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. These, again, are the extremely educated, ruling Jewish elite uh, leaders of their time. And Jesus is speaking about them, and it says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So he's mortified that they've turned their rule-following behavior into the end game. That's their mission, not where their heart is, but how well they can follow the rules and how good they look following their rules. And that's detestable to God. Drop down to verse 14, still talking about the Pharisees. Let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. So I think about now is, gosh, that's not what we often talk about in today's world. It's, you know, how famous, how successful, how learned, how many degrees. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but when those become our aim, as opposed to our surrender and our dependence upon God, they become prideful, arrogant, uh, take away our dependence upon God, and God does not have a place for that in terms of being useful. So what I think again about what am I reflecting to the world? What are you reflecting to the world? Reggie, if you could pull up the first slide. You know, where is your security? Um, by the way, this is a multiple-choice test. I've taken many, many tests for my jobs over the years. Um, if you're not a great test taker, but you're in church, if Jesus is on the list, probably going to be the answer. But are you putting your security in your abilities, your skill set? Are you putting it in your finances, your relationships? None of these are bad things. These are all fine things. When they take the place of... Jesus, in terms of our security, they become toxic things. Or is it your relationship with Jesus? Next one, Reggie. Likewise, where's your focus? Is your focus on yourself? Is your focus on your circumstances? Is it on others? Your marriage? Relationship with your kids? Um, or is it on your relationship with Jesus? Um, these are tough questions when I ask them to myself. I, I immediately know the answer in my head. I know the answer is supposed to be, I'm supposed to have security, I'm supposed to be reflecting... Christ in my life, but when I look at my life on a daily basis, what, what am I spending my hours and minutes doing? How, um, what do people see in me? Um, quite often, it's A through C. Quite often, I'm putting my security in my job, my income, my family, my marriage. Um, none of those bad things. I love my job. I love my family, but clearly, I'll share some of my testimony later. When my security was coming from those things, it's like trying to grip sand tighter and tighter, and it's falling through my fingers. Um, when I'm genuinely reflecting Christ in my life and in my priorities, those things tend to fall into place well. Or if there's a struggle, I feel a contentment that God's going to deliver for me one way or the other, whether it's the way I wanted it or not, but there's a peace that passes understanding there. And I find our focus and our security can often be especially hard for people who are intimately involved in church. So if you're one of the sort of busy bees up here that's 
service, 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 I would ask yourself a tough question. Am I busy with service so that I can not focus on where my heart is? Am I busy doing something on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and making phone calls and doing this and that so I don't really have to ask, is that what God called me to do? It's not more church. It's not more rules. It's not more being unselfish. Jesus needs your heart. And when your heart is there, those things come from a place of love. Those things come from a place of service. And sometimes it's saying, no, even if it's what I thought you should be doing or Pastor Shane thought you should be doing or your mother or father or kid thought you should be doing, when you're intimately fellowshipping in Christ, he's going to put on your heart. Clearly, it'll never be something that's contradictory to the Bible. But there's many avenues of service and there's many callings. And sometimes it's stretching yourself. Sometimes it's pulling yourself back and focusing on your own self for a while and your own walk and your own spiritual needs. Uh, but when you're fellowshipping with Christ, you'll get there. Reggie, if you get the next slide. So who knows who this guy is? Pretty much everyone. Michael Phelps. So he's the most decorated Olympian of all time, 23 gold medals, won five other bronze and silver medals. Next one, he's, you know, this guy's made to swim. He's been swimming for more than 20 years. He set a world record at the age of 15. Um, and if our spiritual salvation, next one, came down to swimming across that pool, and I'm Michael Phelps, I'm like, I got this. I'm going to crush it. Not only am I going to get across the pool for my salvation, I'm going to do it better than you. I'm pretty much going to do it better than the other 7 billion people on the earth. Um, I've got tons in the tank. This is what I was made to do. Next one. What if it came to swimming across that lake? Um, if I'm Michael Phelps, I still probably got this. I probably still have some left in the tank. If it's me, I'm a little nervous. Um, my skill set's not as good as Michael Phelps. Um, I'm in pretty decent shape. I like to run, but I don't swim very well. It'd be pretty awkward. Maybe if I got a coach, worked on my stroke for a while, a lot of work and effort, um, I might be able to do it, but there'd be some trepidation. Next one. So those two dots there, that is uh, 70 miles. That's a swim between Grand Cayman and Little K. And an Australian-British swimmer, Penny Palfrey, set the world record for the unaided ocean, open ocean swim, 70 miles by herself. Um, if it came down to swimming that for my salvation, I know I'm cooked. There's, there's no way. Um, I, need, I need a savior there. Um, somebody can do it. There's clearly somebody in the world that can do it, this woman. Michael Phelps, I bet he'd be pretty nervous about that swim, too, even though he's made to swim. Maybe with different kind of training, going from faster swimming to longer distance, he might be able to do it. But that's crazy. But somebody's been able to get there with work and dedication and focus. Next one. What if I dropped you in the middle of the South Pacific? Nobody can do that. I don't care if you're Michael Phelps, whose body was genetically programmed to be a swimmer, whose work ethic has made him a great swimmer, if you're Penny Palfrey, who set the world record for open water swim. There's no amount of training, effort, dedication, effort, skill set, fortune, pedigree that is going to get you out of that spot in the water. You need a savior. You need a helping hand. Many of us treat our spiritual walks like that lap across the pool or swim across the lake. We focus on our abilities. We focus on maybe the abilities of others, and we're a little bit envious of those things. They've got more education, more background, more opportunity. Uh, maybe through, we throw in a few prayers about it, but truly surrendered, uh, oftentimes for myself, um, it's a struggle. It's, it, we make it about what we did do yesterday or what we didn't do. We make it about what we did or didn't do. Um, or our efforts today. But the 
Bible tells us that we're all in the middle of the Pacific. In Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all broken and in need of his uh, saving grace. We clearly don't need to follow the rules better, train harder to, to achieve that. Those are good things. They're byproducts of a surrendered heart. Um, but we need to accept um, God's grace and accept his, his helping hand. Thanks, Reggie. So when I ask myself again, is my, my heart surrendered to God? Um, I do believe in my heart that God's plan will best come to fruition when I have a surrendered heart. That's an easy thing to know. Um, it's hard to always live out in my, my life. Clearly, we don't believe the Bible teaches. We don't believe in this church body, a health, wealth, prosperity, that if I do have a surrendered heart, God's going to bless me with health, better relationships, um, better job, more money, more whatever. He's not a genie in a bottle. Um, but we do believe that God's plan is going to come to fruition, and I'll share a little bit of David's story, likewise, that things that probably would have made sense on paper weren't always what was going on, and what was going on actually prepared David to exactly deal with his future circumstances. Um, the thought of surrender to many sounds kind of intimidating. You're telling me I'm supposed to sort of give up my authority, my efforts, my skills, and, and be surrendered to God, but when you think about being dropped in the middle of the South Pacific, it should sound freeing that we have freedom in our surrender. We have freedom in knowing that God wants us to have life and have it to the full. He's got our back and that his love for us is, is perfect. And when we surrender to that, we are going to be living in God's will and our life is going to follow the pathway that God calls for us, which is one that will let us have a peace that passes all understanding. And it is not about what mistakes we made yesterday that for some are imprisoning ourselves with guilt. Many giants of the Bible as you well know, had deeply flawed times in their life. Moses, guy who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he had a deep, deep heart for God. He had a deep heart for his people. Many times the Bible he said, God, if you're not going, I'm not going. I don't want a part of any blessing that you're not a part of. Deep, deep heart for God. But when he tried to do things on his own time frame, on his own agenda, it led to murder. Exodus chapter 2, I think it's in your notes. You can read that. Um, he pleaded with God to find somebody else to help lead the people because he didn't trust in his skill set. He said he's clumsy and slow of speech. He's not a gifted communicator. He's not slick, beautiful, whatever. God said, nope, I've got your heart. You're my man to do this job. And it doesn't matter what your skill set is because I will make your skill set work for what I need to have done. Paul, as a Pharisee named Saul, he knew the Bible like few others. He'd been very well educated, but his heart was stone. His heart was far from God. In fact, he was a persecutor, most of you know, of Christians. And when he was present at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, the Bible says that he consented with delight. He didn't just be present. He didn't just not stop it. He consented with delight. He took joy in watching somebody for their faith get stoned. And Luke shared a few weeks ago, he was the equivalent of when we see a picture of ISIS on the television and watch somebody being executed for their beliefs. That was Paul. And when God grabbed his heart, on the road to Damascus, he, if there's an ever a definition of somebody being reborn, that was this guy, the, the epitome of evil and a selfish, selfish heart being transformed to a guy who went on to proclaim and boast many things for God and brag for God, as Cassidy just shared. And he wrote half the New Testament. Um, God didn't say your past is too bad to be used by me. You should be imprisoned with shame and guilt. You've done too many things. If you just 
wallow in your sorry for another two years or five years or 20 years, maybe then I'll let you do some little thing. God said, do I have your heart today? And when the answer was yes, he was ready to be used by God greatly. And the last of my sort of giants of the Bible that had deeply flawed times and successes for God were David. Um, in Acts, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. I mean, what a blessing to have somebody say that about you, a man after God's own heart. He had tremendous, tremendous successes for God, but he also had periods of deep selfishness and, and just being intolerant of what God had called him to do. Um, and the thing I love about David is um, he never let his mistakes prevent him from returning to fellowship with God. Uh, on the other hand, though, his great successes for God weren't sufficient for today's needs. So when he had victory over Goliath, it didn't give him like a, a bank account of credit to use for the next 50 years. He still had to make that choice. And when he did not make the choices that God called him to do, it led to just great strife in his life. So I want to focus on David's story a bit. And many of you know his sort of humble beginnings. And if you now flip over to 1 Samuel, that's probably in the first third of the New Testament. you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, then 1 Samuel, chapter 16. And early on, nobody really seemed to think, think very much of David. Um, God told Samuel, one of the prophets, to go to Bethlehem to anoint a new king. He was sent to the home of Jesse, uh, David's father. And Jesse's family was not a special family. It weren't, weren't like they were the big shots in town. Um, they were just kind of a generic family in Israel. Um, and Samuel tells Jesse, hey, one of your sons I'm going to anoint as king. I'm, if I'm Jesse, I'm thinking, great, let's round up the kids, see who it's going to be. He rounds up seven of his sons. He didn't even think to bring out David. David's the runt of the family, I guess. He's the youngest of the sons. He's out tending sheep in the fields. And if you go 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7, so Jesse's now parading his sons out in front of, of uh, the prophet Samuel. And when they entered, this is Samuel, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. God does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And if you'll drop down to verse 10, thus Jesse made all seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And now if I'm Samuel, I'm thinking, I came to this guy, the Lord told me to come here, I've seen his sons, God said no to each one of them, this guy's telling me these are his sons, I'm confused. Samuel says to Jesse, are, are these all your children? And Jesse lets the cat out of the bag, well, there remains yet the youngest, uh, and behold, he's tending sheep. David's own father didn't think he had the skill set to be anointed king. Um, but because God knew David's heart, God knew David's heart was committed to God. God knew that David was his man, even though he didn't have the stature or the looks of his oldest brother. Even after he's anointed king, others still didn't see this. If you'll drop to chapter 17, where we get to the famous story of David and Goliath. And to set the stage for this story, you have the Israel, Israelite army and the Philistine army encamped on opposite sides, ready for battle. And for a long time, many, many days, Goliath, their giant soldier, comes out mocks God, mocks the Israeli army, says, hey, send your best guy out, I'll fight him. If you kill me, you win. If I kill your guy, we win. Get all your stuff. Um, 
and this has been going on for a while. And David, is he out there standing tall for God? No, he's actually still in the fields tending sheep. After he's been anointed to be king, he's still got this very humble background job. I don't know exactly David's heart at that moment. I can imagine thinking, I just got anointed to be king. Why am I still looking out after these few sheep? Doesn't sound very fancy. Shouldn't I be at some king school? Some training that allows me to be fancy instead of sitting with a bunch of sheep and no friends, no no mentorship. Um, but David's father, Jesse, says to David, tells him to go to the battlefront, check on how his three sons that are up there are doing, take some food for them, hoping to hear some good news. And as David approaches, he hears Goliath mocking God, mocking the army, and he's curious. He's like, who's letting this guy get away with this? What is this guy doing, and why are you afraid of him? The Israelite army is trembling at the size of this behemoth. Um, and in 1 Samuel 17, 28, now Eliab, this is the oldest brother, the one Samuel first thought, oh, he must be the king. Look at this guy. He's tall, good-looking, strong. When Eliab, the oldest brother, heard David asking these questions to the men, Eliab's anger burned against David. This is his own brother. Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you come down in order to see the battle. He doesn't think David's there to do anything positive. He's furious with David, thinking David just came to watch somebody get gored with a spear or their head chopped off. David's not wound up about his brother. He's wound up that somebody's insulting his God and that people aren't taking boldness from God. As David tells the king, he will fight Goliath. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go fight this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he's been a warrior from his youth. And David did not put his trust uh, in the things of Saul or the things of his brother. If you'll drop down to verse 37. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of a lion and from the paw of a bear. See, God had been preparing David for many years in the wilderness watching sheep um, without king school, without other things, to trust that his skill set was going to be matured for the day's need. Um, so the Lord that delivered me from the paw of a lion and paw of a bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Saul still is not putting a lot of faith in David. Um, he then decides to clothe David in the armor. So then Saul clothed David with his garments, put a bronze helmet on his head, clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David can't even walk at this point. He's got so much junk on that he is just kind of kind of clunky. And he says, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. David simply just picked up some stones, put them in his little pouch, had his sling as he approached Goliath. And as he's approaching Goliath now, he's getting what he was listening to being mocked earlier. Now he's the one getting mocked and taunted by, by Goliath. David remains unfazed. Not because he's got a great skill set, not because he probably knows exactly what's going to happen, but he knows God's going to provide for him. And that if his faith is in God, it doesn't matter that it looks a little ridiculous from one side to the other. So if you'll drop down in 17 to verse 47, and he's responding to Goliath's taunts, and all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Where is David's security at this time? It was quite different than the entire, Saul's security, it was quite different than the entire 
um, Israel army at that time, security, who had been trembling at the sight of Goliath for days and days and days and days. David is bold, not from his skill set, not from his armor, not from a cool weapon. He's bold because he knows his heart is uh, for God and that God loves him. Then it happened, when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He's still not scared. He's not intimidated. He doesn't have a bunch of fancy stuff, but he ran quickly to the battle line. He clearly had his security and he had his focus on his relationship with God and God's provision. His bravado was huge, but it came not from any single thing he had. His bravado came from his complete surrender and dependence um, and desire to honor God. And as everybody knows, David swung his sling, sank a stone deep into Goliath's head, and won the battle for Israel. David used greatly, not because he was talented. King Saul didn't see it. His brother didn't see it. His father didn't see it. I mean, my mom and dad, you know, if I told them I, you know, could fly to the moon, they would say, oh, yeah, I know you could do that tomorrow. Like, they'd tell me I can do anything. David's own dad didn't even think he was very, very worthy of being king. But when he submitted, he was freed up to be used for God's glory. So what happens when David takes this focus off of God and resists kind of God's authority? And if you'd flip over to 2 Samuel, one book over, chapter 11, David is now king of Israel. He's gone through many hardships and trials. His pathway to kingship was not easy, um, but he kept his heart uh, and focus on God. But, but he, you know, yesterday's successes are not sufficient for today's need for fellowship and grace. Um, and the story of David and Bathsheba really is illustrative of that. So David's now king, and he, he meets Bathsheba in uh, chapter 11, verse 2. Now when the evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So where is David's focus and security now? Is this the same guy that ran quickly to the battlefront with Goliath? Is he putting his trust and his security and having his needs met by God's provision? And how does David deal with his shortcoming here? He does what many of us do. He tries to hide his sin. Continuing in verse 6, Then David sent to Joab, one of his commanders in his army, Send me Uriah the Hittite. They're at the battle lines in, a, in another battle. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab. He's got this whole ruse going. He's got this whole thing acting as if he's worried about what's going on in the front line, worried about the commander, worried about the army. So when Uriah came to him, he asked about the concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and to the state of the war. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a distant journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Is this again the same David that had boldness and courage and complete dependence on God's provision. He's 
getting desperate. He's getting frustrated that his little plot to cover up this pregnancy is not working. It gets more frustrating for David. So Uriah responds, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, drink, and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this. Uriah's honoring David by not going, he's not going to have some privilege that the rest of the Israel, Israelite army is not going to have. And he's telling David, it's because I have such love and respect for you that I'm not going to do these things. David has to be burning on the inside. Like my, my best tricks are not helping me cover up this sin that I just want to put away. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David called him the next day. So David calls him again, and they ate and drank, and he got Uriah drunk. So he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So David's next plan is, he didn't go when I just invited him to go. I'll get him drunk, push him down the street, try and get him to go with his wife. But Uriah still does not want to go do that because he doesn't want to disrespect the rest of the soldiers and David by being with his wife. So again, David is just caught in this trap, and he's putting his security and his wisdom and his skill set, which now as king, his power was great and considerable. But his plan to bring Uriah in town, his plan to get him drunk is, is not working. So David's next step, does he return to fellowship with God? Does he say, I made some mistakes and, and let's, let's deal with reality and, and focus on this? Nope, cover up time. David plans Uriah's death. So if you'll drop down to 14. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, one of the military commanders, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he writes a letter essentially telling him to let this guy die, and he has Uriah himself carry it to the front lines. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle, and then withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men, men on the other side. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. What a, what a tragedy. This is, it's hard to believe this is the same guy who goes from such boldness to cover up, cover up, cover up to the point of murdering this guy who had just respected and honored David in every conversation they'd ever had. Well, if you'll drop to verse 26, David does marry Bathsheba. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, there was a prophet at that time named Nathan, and he comes to David and confronts David about his sin. He said, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? David's not getting hammered over the head by Nathan, but Nathan in love is, is holding him accountable, saying, this is not what God's called you to do. And David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And what does Nathan say? The Lord has taken away your sin in verse 13. So when David's heart was right, after tremendous sin, after tremendous sin, after tremendous sin, God's not worried about how many checks you have in the positive column versus the negative column. Um, having checks in the positive column is a byproduct of a heart that's surrendered. It's not the end game. That's what's wrong with the Pharisees. That's what's wrong with much of American Christian culture that lets people see what they saw in that Google search. But when David's heart returns to God, the Lord has taken away your sin. 
Now, one of the consequences of David's sin was that his newborn son was not going to survive. The newborn baby was ill. Uh, David pleaded and pleaded with God, please don't let my baby die. Please don't let my baby die. The baby died after about a week. Um, and immediately after his son passed, we read in verse 20, so David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. You can see this is back to being the same guy that has boldness for God. I'm sure he's grieving. He's hurt. He has a long set of painful consequences that come from his selfish actions. Um, but he does not let them those things hold him back from worshiping God and returning to fellowship with God. And I think that can apply to all of us. Whether you've had a season of success, um, you still have to make a choice today to surrender to God, to get out of the way, to let yourself be a reflection of that and not be about me. And if you've had a season of struggle, failure, mistake, challenge, um, God wants to say, the Lord has taken away your sin. That's true. And he desperately wants your fellowship and desperately wants you to be a reflection of him regardless of where yesterday was. So one of Pastor Shane's messages a number of years back included a statement that I'll, I'll kind of never forget. And it's not about what you achieve. It's about what you receive. It's not your pedigree or lack of a pedigree. It's surrendering to Christ daily and accepting his grace. And I personally could pray on that message um, every day and still need to hear that message again the next day. Um, that's, a, that's a tough one for me. I'd like to share a little bit of my testimony as it relates to pride and following the rules and reluctance to surrender. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. I love my parents. I have two, two good ones. Um, I was actively involved in a church that preached, preached truth. Um, I knew I had sin in my life and as as much or little understanding as you can have as a little boy at about six, I accepted Christ into my heart. As I matured and grew up through high school, college, I believed the key tenets of our faith. I lived them fairly well. I had a pretty, pretty clean life. I was a good kid in high school and college. Uh, I met my spectacular wife, Susie, about four years after college. Um, we remained actively engaged in a church, didn't do too many bad things, um, had two lovely kids, um, had a job that I loved, and as life got busy, um, the personal aspect of my faith became not so personal. My relationship with Christ really became stale. Uh, I didn't have some tremendous named bad sin in my life, but the, the bad sin in my life was that it was about me. It was quite selfish and prideful. Um, I became very mechanistic in my faith. Um, I didn't want to admit that Christ doesn't need my church attendance or my anything of that. It's not what it's about. He needs my heart and that those other things are sort of a byproduct of that. But I knew I wasn't saved by works, but my relationship, again, just wasn't very personal. And when I examined my life with, with some transparency, I basically defined myself by what I was doing or not doing. And what I knew in my head was not really being reflected in my heart or in my, my actions. And this, for me, was poison. Um, and just as Satan may let past failures sabotage some, somebody from living for Christ today, um, I got very lazy and content thinking that my, my Christian background or culture was good enough, and I chose not to actively surrender. Um, this was me wanting control, not choosing to surrender, and that clearly is sin. 
And it wasn't really working for me as an individual in my life at that point. It wasn't working in my marriage as, as a spouse, and it wasn't working for me as a father. Um, and as Susie and I had a season where things were bubbling up because living a clean life and being in control doesn't work very well um, if your heart's not in the right place. Um, we were really searching for some, some growth and some change in our life because it wasn't, wasn't working for us. And we went through a little program that asked us a few key questions about our lives. And number one was, what do you claim is important? Who do you want to be? And for me, the answer was easy. I knew the answer in my head. I knew it's what I wanted. It's to be a Christ-centered person, have somebody who loves Jesus, has people see that that's who I am. It was an easy answer. Well, the next question was quite painful. It was, what does your life look like? And my life at that point really looked like somebody who wanted to be in control, wanted to rely on my skill set, wanted to rely on the things that I could do, many of which are fine things. There's nothing wrong with much of what are the things I was investing my time with other than I was investing my time in those things to avoid surrender. I was investing my time in those things to remain in control of what I wanted to do. And then it asked, well, if question one is you want to have a life that looks like this, question two is your life looks like this, why is that and what's in the way? And this was a wake-up call. And for David, when he had a time to say, I've sinned against the Lord, that's what I needed to come out and say, gosh, this is, this is a terrible thing for me. I've sinned against the Lord and I need to go get up and worship God. So as I started to do that, I re-engaged in a daily quiet time, and this for me was really transformative. It was like a thousand bricks being lifted off my back. Uh, to the casual observer, my life might not have looked so, so different, but for me, for our household, um, it, was, it was transformative, not being defined by a rule-based life, but a life of freedom from rules or measuring sticks, because just accepting that I'm saved by grace I'm in the middle of the South Pacific, and it's not about my effort today. It's about where my heart is. So clearly I'm not perfect. I still, of course, make mistakes. Um, I'd love to tell you otherwise, but I have family and dear friends in here who do know my heart and do know that I'm not um, a perfect person. I still have to choose to surrender daily to God's plan. And why that is such a struggle, um, I'll never know. But I know it's not a unique struggle to me. I know it's not a unique struggle to David. Paul uh, in 2 Corinthians in uh, chapter 12 talks about because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, this is him talking about what God's put in his life, to keep me from exalting myself, there has given me a thorn in my flesh. Um, and you drop down a, a little bit and he says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times to leave, to, that it might leave me. I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So I know that it is a challenge. We will make mistakes. But when we have a surrendered heart, we can plead for those things, just as Paul pleaded that God would take away the thorn in his flesh but um, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is perfected in weakness. So if I can leave you with one final encouragement, it's that faith in Christ is not about the rules or your background or your pedigree or your mistakes or your successes. But when God's got your heart, he'll give you the direction that you need. It may not be the direction you expected. It may not be the direction that your family wanted or expected. 
But when your heart is surrendered, he will put that on your heart and it will give you a contentment that passes any circumstances, that gives you contentment uh, above and beyond any expectation you could have. So I'd like to close this in prayer now and uh, Shane may have an announcement uh, after that. Dear Lord, I thank you for your presence here today. Um, I, I just thank you for the love that you have for each of us as individuals, the, the perfectness of, of your love for us. I pray that we would go out and just be reflections of you, that it wouldn't be about uh, what we do or don't do, but people would just see a love for you, Jesus, and that that love is sufficient. Amen.